You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Hi, guys. (laughs) I'm Jen Fisher. I'm the associate pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. Welcome, especially if this is your first Sunday. Last summer, we developed a series that we enjoyed so much that we wanted to do it again this summer. It's inspired by all the ways in which we see scripture pull out of its context and misused or misapplied. You guys might know what I mean. You know, maybe that bumper reminded you of your relative's home with the plaque on it that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord or something like that. Or maybe you think of a more millennial equivalent to this, which is to get on Facebook or Instagram and see something like this. Cody, like... Sorry, I, did, I forgot to tell you that's the cue. Like this. <laughs> um, or something else. Um, but I'm not standing here saying that sharing scripture or posting it in your home is something to make fun of. That is not at all what we are saying with this series. I think, though, what the fear is, and I'm sure that many of you would agree with this, that when others see these, these bits of passages and verses, they might misinterpret how Jesus or Moses or whoever it was that was saying them and what God meant to convey through those words. So I think this morning, or over the next few weeks, in fact, we're going to unpack these things together so that hopefully next time you see one of these kind of famous quotes, you might have a different understanding of it and be able to talk about that with people in your life. All the passages that we're going to talk about have come from conversations that we have had with uh, community members over the past, I don't know, few months or so. In fact, last year, it hurt my heart to hear a friend of mine say that there was this passage in Matthew that brought her a lot of pain and anxiety. Uh, It's in chapter 5. It's, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this should be a, a, a piece of verse that is actually culminating in this beautiful life-giving sermon on the mount. But for my friend, it brought out that pain and anxiety because her parents used to say it to her in a way that shamed her and made her feel like she would never live up to a certain standard of perfection. There was another person that I talked to last year who said that she just stopped reading her Bible entirely because she started at the very beginning. And about four books in, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, she couldn't do it anymore. Makes sense, right? I totally don't blame her. There is some big and scary stuff going on in there. And if you don't have a commentary or a teacher or even a small group to help you figure it out and to figure out kind of the bigger arc of scripture, what God is doing in those chapters, then yeah, I wouldn't read those either. There is some looming and violent stuff going on in this thing. Really tough to understand at times. And so my question for you guys this morning is what are those passages that are kind of looming over you? What are those bits of verses in scripture that you have serious baggage with because of the way that someone used them or the church used them when you were younger? You know, what is it that that stirs up in you that gets defensive or confused or angry when you see people misusing scripture on social media, for example? This is the stuff that I want us to start thinking about. And so as we begin this series today, I want us to start at the very beginning, which is Genesis. And we're going to dig a little bit into this creation story. And so to start this whole thing off, I want to say that we talk a lot around here about faithfully questioning scripture. Jonathan talked a little bit about this last week as we got started with this whole conversation. Um, And I've noticed over the past few months that members of our community are taking this idea of faithfully questioning scripture and understanding it as doubting scripture or deconstructing it. 
And while yes, exploring our doubts and deconstructing what we knew about our faith from a younger age is certainly part of that process of faithfully questioning our own understanding of scripture, I think we do ourselves a great disservice if that is all that we do. If there is deconstruction, but no reconstruction, we'll say. You know, and often around here, we also say that we care more about asking good questions than in having right answers, okay? And I think that actually, that phrase is getting at the heart of what we fully mean when we talk about faithfully questioning scripture. Sometimes we miss out not because of the answers that we come up with, but because of the questions that we're asking as we read our Bibles. My absolute favorite thing about reading scripture is that every time you come back to it, there are new layers and new levels of understanding because our relationship with God is a progressive one. It evolves as we evolve. God stays the same, but hopefully we change. We evolve as human beings who experience life and we start to understand scripture on different layers and different levels. This is something that the Jewish people understood really well. They read the same text at the same time every year and they fully expected to understand it differently because of the experiences of life over the past you know, 12 months. And they fully expected that God would be present in their midrash, their debate and their, their reading of it. And it's such a beautiful thing. And I wonder, especially this morning as we talk about something as big as the creation story, I wonder if we might be able to kind of sit in that freedom as well and allow ourselves to ask new questions and to allow ourselves to find new layers of meaning as we explore Genesis. All right, so maybe I've totally lost you and where I'm going with all this. Let me explain it all a little more literally, okay? I'm gonna guess that the vast majority of us, when we think about the creation story in 2016, right, we get those thoughts that have something to do with creation versus Darwinism or intelligent design or um, what's it called? Evolution. <laughs> Science was not my favorite subject in class. Let me just get that out right now. <laughs> um, so this whole thing, right? We kind of, it's this big religion versus science debate in our, in our culture. And the questions that then need to be answered get focused in on how old the earth really is, or did God actually make the earth in six or seven days with the rest? Um, some people believe in these things so strongly that they have become fundamental in their thinking about it, while other people think it's just complete rubbish and that you know, science has disproved it all and it should just be thrown away. And still others, I think, maybe think that Genesis is just, it's a myth or a story and it doesn't need to be taken much more seriously than that. Or maybe you might fall somewhere in the camp that I kind of did of um, you know, trying to reconcile both sides. Like maybe one day is a thousand years for God because there's a line in one of the Psalms that says that. Maybe that could explain or reconcile this whole debate. And these are all valid questions, questions that have caused some very intelligent people to walk away from the faith entirely. They are questions that have inspired books and movies and worldviews and religious doctrine. They've even inspired, inspired laws and educational policies. And these debates, believe it or not, if you do a simple Google search, they are still going on in courtrooms today, even into the 21st century, which I found kind of amazing. One of my go-to guys for this particular debate He's a friend of ours here at Forefront. They call him Science Mike. He's got this podcast called Ask Science Mike. He's on our podcast, Midrush NYC. Uh, and if you go to Mike's website you'll, or listen to his podcast, you'll see that he happily unpacks 
physics and biology, and all, he's a giant science nerd. Um, and he also ties it back into the church and into faith. This is because he was a Christian turned atheist turned Christian again. So if you're looking for things like, why is the sky blue and what does God have to do with it? Like, Science Mike is your guy, okay? So I went to his blog and I found this on what he has to say about creation versus evolution. He said, any attempt to prop up a literal interpretation of the creation account serves only to undermine the church and weaken people's belief in God. It's time to put this issue to bed. In other words, Mike doesn't see this as a science versus religion debate. When we force each other to choose, to choose one side or the other, then we all lose. And this isn't some modern statement that Mike is making either, because St. Augustine made similar statements uh, in his book, The Literal Meaning of Genesis, which was written in 401, somewhere between 401 to 415 AD. This is what St. Augustine said. Usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world, about the motion and orbit of the stars, and even their size and relative positions about the predictable eclipses of the sun and moon, the cycles of the years and the seasons, about the kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth. And this knowledge he holds to as being certain from reason and experience. Now, it's a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel, a non-Christian, to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture talking nonsense on these topics. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven, when they think their pages are full of falsehoods on facts which they themselves have learned from experience and the light of reason? Experience, reason, both Science Mike and St. Augustine belong to this camp of believers that believe, yes, we can see from our own life, in fact, that human beings have evolved. But fortunately, the Bible's authority does not rest on such contradicting ideas as, you know, that the human race has evolved from two people, Adam and Eve, for example. And so my argument for us to consider today sits outside of this science versus religion debate as well. I want us to start to think about questioning Genesis a little bit differently. To me, to faithfully question the book of Genesis, I don't turn to science, I turn to Jesus. Because for me, as I've studied this book and been both frustrated and encouraged by it, I think the thing that I find it, it worth taking a second look at altogether is that it teaches us about the character, the values, and the priorities of the person of Jesus Christ. And some of you guys might find that surprising because you know it's like a bajillion pages until Jesus actually enters the story, right? But that's the thing about questions. When we start to ask the right kind of questions, or better questions, um, we start to have more and more questions. Oftentimes they don't start, they don't stop. When we engage in scripture with our imaginations, our reason, our intelligence, our life experiences and emotions, one question after another will start to rise up and we find ourselves in a new layer of thinking. But oftentimes, I think especially when we come across a really hard passage, one of those you know, looming texts, we might just simply ask the question, why did God say this? And the problem I think with a question like that is that it kind of gets us stuck and tied up into knots. You know, really, God created the world in seven days? I'm supposed to believe that even though science says otherwise? I'm supposed to just accept that to be a Christian and not be made into a fool in front of my friends? That's the kind of stuff that comes up when you're deconstructing and, and get stuck with a question like that. 
But what if instead of asking, why did God say this? What if we tried something a little, a little different? What if we asked instead, why did the author find it important to tell this story? Then maybe we might follow that with a question like, what was happening in the world at the time that the author was writing it? And then we might say, you know, what is this passage, book, verse, whatever it might, it might be? What is it telling us about how people understood who they were and who God was at that time? And then finally, we might ask something like, what's the story that's unfolding here? What does it teach us about God? In other words, what's the bigger picture going on? Then finally, then we might actually have enough information to responsibly ask the question that maybe we've been wanting to get out from the start because we're individual people, right? We live in a very individualized culture. Oftentimes we go to our Bible and we want to know, how does this affect me? But in order to answer that question responsibly, we have to do a whole lot of other questions first. And then finally, we might be able to ask, how does this book, the very first book, Genesis, how does it fit into my understanding of my life in Christ? Another way to say that is, what relationship do I see between this narrative and my understanding of Jesus? And then, how do I apply it into my life today? So if we're going to ask questions like that, we've got to start with a couple of ground rules. You hear this a lot. Jonathan says it, right? Bible people didn't know they were living in Bible times. Ground rule number one. Number two, here at Forefront, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. This means that it was written by broken, flawed, beautiful human beings just like all of us. Um, and they had a specific audience with a specific culture and place and time in mind when they were writing. Okay, and these are important things to keep in mind. Our hope this summer is to equip you guys to have the ability to start asking better questions as you dig into scripture for yourself. And having kind of these ground rules and just this common way to do this together kind of will help you, I think, start to practice it. And we're also going to practice this a little bit together this morning. So let's dive in. Question number one that I asked earlier. Why did the author find it important to tell this story? First thing that I think comes out of that is who is the author of the book of Genesis, this creation story? Anybody know? Shout it out. Who do we believe the author is of this book? Moses. Thank you. Good. Cool. The majority of scholars attribute Moses to writing the first five books of the Bible, in fact, which are called the Torah. And that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they believe that he wrote them um, with and for the Hebrew people as they were living in exile in Babylon. In fact, this is just a fun tidbit, but Genesis was probably written last, they think, um, but it was obviously meant to be read first. And yes, there are obvious parts of this book um, or these books that Moses clearly didn't write, like he didn't write about his own death, for example. Um, but let me try to explain that to you a little bit differently. Like, think about the American Constitution, okay? Go in the other direction. Um, who do we generally say is the author, authors of the American Constitution? We say like the founding fathers, right? We'll call them that, okay? But then think about the amendments of the Constitution. Some of them were written long after the founding fathers had passed away, and yet we still give the overall authorship of the Constitution to those original men because they wrote the laws that inspired the, the spirit of the amendments that followed. Does that make sense? It's the same kind of idea for Moses. This is why they generally call it the laws of Moses as well. And um, anyone else who helped to write that were inspired by um, the spirit and the laws of what Moses was doing, okay? So now the question that we want to ask then is, why did Moses find it important to tell this story? 
And I think we still don't really have enough information to answer that question responsibly. So the natural question that follows is, well, what was happening in the world at that time? Maybe that'll tell us why Moses decided to put this down on paper, papyrus. And this is pretty interesting stuff, I think. If you do a, an internet search, <laughs> if you do an internet search, you can find stuff. You can go to Science Mike's website. Uh, I read a book called Introduction to the Torah by Robert Alter, really good stuff. And I found this in my research, that Genesis is a story tied to the people who told it. There was this tribe, the Hebrew people, seeking to differentiate themselves from the world powers and the culture they were living in at the time, the Babylonians, okay? And if we look up what the culture of Babylon was like at that time, then you might find out that the Babylonians told stories about how the universe came to be because of a war between the gods, this violent war between the gods, and that human beings were created to be slaves for the gods. And yet in Genesis, we get a very different picture of, of how and why God created the world and human beings, right? Very different values are communicated through Genesis. So if you were you know, a Hebrew mom and dad trying to explain this, these ideological perspectives and, and um, finding hope in life and, and trying to hold on to your religion, you're gonna tell stories that reflect the values of your people to your kids, right? And these stories get passed on. Oral history is the main form of communication. These are stories that are given throughout the generations. Moses is simply putting them down onto paper. So if we keep this in mind and we look at chapter one and the story of how God creates the world, we see one, um, we see the story that's without violence, that God orders the chaos and, and creates the world through his word and his voice. So let's read it again. Chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. You see, instead of being slaves, human beings are created and given dominion in the created order, and they, like God, are supposed to be relational human beings. Genesis is giving the set of values not about war and mess, but about peace and community uh, and harmony. But uh, it also lays out the start of a story that I think is gonna find its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. That's why he's called the second Adam. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So perhaps the inspired word of God that Moses was writing about here wasn't about the Big Bang Theory or some other version of evolution or scientific fact because that's not what the people needed to hear at the time. It makes sense that this would be an ancient worldview on, on creation, right? Because the people, the audience and the author were pre-enlightenment, uh, they were pre-science, they were pre-history in fact. Which brings me back to my next question on our list from earlier, which is, what does this book tell us about how people understood who they were and who God was at the time? Here's something I found pretty cool. If you look at the book of Genesis as a whole, you gotta break it into two sections. There's chapters one through 11, which are the proto-historical narratives, which means, in a nutshell, that they are pre-history. They exist before or outside of history. And this is a, like a literary thing. Um, the way that we look at historical documents today is different than the way that they would have written like a biography or a history back then. 
Uh, and this literary fact alone should actually alleviate you from a lot of the discussions that people want to have or the questions that they want to beg out of Genesis that Genesis is just straight up not trying to answer, to be honest. So for example, we'll stick with our American history examples here. Uh, if you take the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, okay, we can say that the year that it was fought, who won, who was there, we have all these verifiable details that we're comfortable calling facts, right? But in these proto-historical narratives of the beginning of Genesis, uh, these are not historical documents or verifiable facts. And that doesn't mean that you should just reject them and embrace evolution. It's just, it's not trying to communicate timelines and facts. You're not supposed to read this as if it's proving that this is how the cosmos was created. Genesis is just simply not trying to answer those questions. You know, how, how old is the earth? Well, that doesn't matter. It's not the point. The point is, especially like right here in chapter one, the point of this is that human beings are made in the image of God. Genesis one is deriving theology, not science. The purpose of these stories is to tell us about these universal truths of human beings and that human beings, male and female, were created to have dominion, to partner equally with God and to order the chaos around us, okay? Again, another American history example. Um, you know that story about George Washington and the cherry tree where he gets busted because he chopped down his dad's cherry tree? Um, and then he comes along and he says, oh, I cannot tell a lie, it was me, okay? Do you know that historically, that story is just total rubbish, that historians can find no truth behind that actually happening? And yet, it's this part of our popular culture and kind of our American um, history because it conveys certain values. It says that we as Americans, we value being honest and trustworthy and that the American president especially is someone that you can, can trust who's moral. And I will let you draw your own conclusions about how we are doing with that. Yeah, rough, right? It's tough when you think about that story that way. Whew. But if we think about stories and we think about the values they're trying to convey, okay, then we can go back in and take a look at chapter two and maybe start to understand why there's this second account of, of God creating mankind, right? Let's look at that. Verse four, chapter two. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. What values are conveyed through that story? Think about it. What are we hearing in that, in that version? Something about how man was created out of earth, something about how God breathed his spirit, the spirit of life into us. If we consider that, we think about how God desires for us to live, then I think we might have to consider something about how we work out our spirituality as we walk about the earth, how we are part of the earth and how that might call us to value the world differently because God is calling us to be whole human beings, spirit and creation and all. I don't know. There's some beautiful stuff going on in, about how we're called to live when we start to think about what values are being communicated through that story. And while there's beautiful stuff that Genesis conveys like that, there's also some of the darker stuff because we have the whole fruit thing with Adam and Eve and how sin and evil enter into the world. 
My three-year-old niece just recently read about Adam and Eve in her little storybook Bible, and she kept going around saying, don't eat the fruit. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not eating any fruit. <laughs> um, that's what she was talking about, though, because you keep going and you see how these stories and these cities that are created by Cain and Abel, you see how sin and evil sneak in there, and um, on both an individual and communal scale, we get to see the roots of sexism, racism, jealousy, greed, even capitalism. It's all there in the pages of Genesis. I got, honestly, I got kind of depressed reading through some of this stuff back in the wintertime because it brings up questions like, what is the point of even doing social justice or trying to even fix anything in the world because this is how human beings have always been and this is how they're always gonna be. What, what's the point, right? That's the kind of stuff that starts to come up when you start to ask better questions. Which brings me to my last question from earlier, which is, what's the story that's unfolding here? What does it teach us about God? It's here where we come back to the point of it all, okay? When we ask better questions, Genesis does really start to teach us about Jesus. The hope in this whole mess is looking towards Jesus. It's the start of a story that's unfolding that will, that will find its fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and will continue to unfold through us today. Because the proto-historical narratives might be this macro level, right? Um, they're kind of like the text on the screen at the beginning of Star Wars, right? That's kind of what 1 through 11 are. But then the movie starts, and you get focused in on this one man, Abraham, this one family, and you see this new plan evolving, God working through uh, one family, one group of people, one tribe, and so on, um, to bring about redemption. It's this beautiful story of a just and generous God who's got a plan for redeeming the world and bringing it back to his original intention for us. Jesus actually explains this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five of the Gospel of Matthew. He has this line, he says, he tells us he's, not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. See, Jesus was a good Jewish boy. He knew the words of the Torah. He knew the laws of Moses, the words of the prophets. Uh, he knew the creation stories very well. They informed the decisions he made. They informed his character, his priorities, his values, his actions. All of these things are, are pushing us to see that Jesus is the physical embodiment of God's original intent for human beings. Jesus is the kind of person that God desires for us to be. It was the whole point of it all to begin with. And I think what we see when we start to look at that is that Jesus is this model for us, not just like a, a, you know, a checklist or a person we're just supposed to obey, but actually a model of what a human being, when they're flourishing and wholesome and um, living in peaceful community is supposed to look like. I find that incredibly encouraging and kind of beautiful because Jesus is this person who takes the value and the spirit of these laws that he knows so well, these books that he knows so well, and he has conversations with the Pharisees and the people around him trying to help them understand the values and the spirit of the law within their own culture and their own time and place. And the lessons for that for us are the same thing. How do we ask better questions that help us to figure out how to, how to live the values and the spirit of God's word through our lives in our context here in 2016 in Brooklyn, New York? What does it look like for us to be the people of God partnering with him to bring about redemption, to bring about just and generous Christianity? 
This is my challenge for you guys this summer. I'm leaving you with these open-ended questions so that you might be encouraged, I hope, to go back and, and just start at the beginning. Read Genesis. Just read the first three chapters and let go of those old looming questions about science and you know, the creation versus evolution debate and look at this story instead for the values and the, and the life that it's trying to create in you. Consider how you might find Jesus in these words, how it might point towards the bigger story that's unfolding. Ask yourself, how does this narrative fit into my understanding of my life, my heart, and my experiences in Christ? With that being said, let's pray. God, I thank you for the incredible poetry, the, the verses, the words, the spirit that you've infused in us through your word, Lord. Lord, I, I thank you for our intelligence, our reason, um, the scientists, the medical professionals. I, I thank you for everything that you've given us, everything that's at our fingertips through the internet and all of that, so that we might be able to start to ask better questions about who you are, Lord, and how you live within us, God. I just pray that this week and this summer, as we continue to walk through your word together, that we might be a people who shine a light on, on, on Christianity, Lord, on being people who are open and welcoming and ready to, to ask better questions and invite others in, God. I pray that whatever burdens we're carrying this morning might be lifted, that you might allow us and help us to find scripture as a life-giving, encouraging thing today that challenges us and pushes us to be the people that you've desired us to be. I pray all of this in your name. Amen.